Hello and welcome to the Bloodstream Podcast, a show serving the greater bleeding disorders community, brought to you by Believe Limited and Bloodstream Media and made possible thanks to our presenting sponsor, Takeda. I am your patient advocate and host, Patrick James Lynch. And I am your other healthcare advocate. I'm also a nonprofit <laughs> nerd, and I am your other host, Amy Board, reminding you to please speak with a healthcare professional before making any treatment decisions. What a good idea. On today's show, we speak with Dr. Guy Young, pediatric hematologist, investigator, and the director of the CHLAHTC. That's a lot of letters. It's a lot of letters. Children's Hospital of Los Angeles Hemophilia Treatment Center. And he's going to help <laughs> us break down and explain the data from Biomarin's gene therapy clinical trial for hemophilia A, data that was just made public earlier this month. We've also got the latest Let's Talk segment with Josh Bragg, made possible by Sanofi Genzyme and Amy Board. This is crazy. I have a top secret topic. Top secret. I have not told you about. <laughs> Which is unheard of. But want to discuss with you live <laughs> here on the podcast in just a few minutes. Listeners, I just want you to know like he teased this top secret situation yesterday mm-hmm. and we decided to leave it till now. So I don't know anything about it, which is rare. Usually we give each other at least a bullet. Like we're going to talk about this. Could be anything. You don't know what it is Literally at all. don't know what it is. I'm excited. <laughs> Buckle up. Get ready to live. Thank you for listening. Of course, Remember to hit that subscribe button on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get those podcasts. Episodes can also be listened and shared directly from the Bloodstream Media Facebook page. I didn't know if you know that, but like you can actually go on Facebook you and can. like share and listen the podcast. It's true. We've gotten some great responses direct on legit. the Facebook yes. post of the episodes recently, which is, which is super nice. great. And of course, as always, if you've got suggestions for topics or guests, or you just have a thought you'd like us to know. You have questions? We like thoughts. I don't know. For me or Patrick, you can ping us on social media or email us at mailbag at bloodstreammedia.com. Try to stump us. Give, <laughs> try, really throw us a curveball. Let's see what we do with it. Oh my gosh, that is a call to action. Try to, try to stump, stump us. us. Try to give us a topic that we're just going to be like, we can't handle that. <laughs> Go, community. (laughs) Listeners, I also want to remind you that the Bloodstream Podcast is made possible by our presenting sponsor, Takeda. Yes, that's right, that Takeda. Takeda's got this website, you probably heard of it, bleedingdisorders.com, where you can learn all about Takeda's resources for and commitment to the bleeding disorders community. Takeda believes in a world free of bleeds. Sounds remarkable. And are dedicated more than ever in their efforts to offer a wide range of programs and support to help patients throughout their treatment journey wherever on that journey they may be. You, dear listener, can learn more by simply visiting, once again, bleedingdisorders.com. One more time, just for good measure. That's bleedingdisorders.com. And for their founding and ongoing support of the Bloodstream Podcast, I would just like to say, thanks, Takeda. All right, Amy. So we've got Dr. Young. We've got important data we're going to get into. There's a Let's Talk segment. Mental health stuff's important. Lots going on. But here's the topic. Here's topic number one for today. Oh, God. And I I, got to tell you, even coming into today, I was like, maybe I'm not going to talk about this with her. And then I was like, but then what am I going to do? Because I've set up this whole thing. So I I can't just not talk about it. Um, Amy Board, I think this might be the year that Patrick James Lynch is going under the knife and getting a little ankle surgery. Oh my gosh! I thought you would, because we live in Los Angeles, I was like, are you going to get lip fillers, JK? No, not yet. (laughs) Not there yet. But I might be getting my ankle fused. Wow! And I'm still coming to terms with that. Um, but I had an appointment on Monday at my hemophilia treatment center okay, okay. with Dr. James Luck, uh-huh. who uh, actually just did a presentation on joint replacement surgeries for HFA. Yes. Uh, didn't go to it, but I got to talk to him Monday and get the cliff notes. So I was like, oh, good. That, I feel special. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I've been flirting with this for a while. You and I have talked about this yes. on and off the pod more so over the last year that in general, I've had more pain and discomfort mm-hmm. and it's gotten disruptive in a way that I'm like, this is not sustainable. And at yeah. my age and with an 11-month-old and we want to have more kids and COVID's not going to keep us all, you know, not moving around a whole lot forever. Um, coming into this year, I was like, okay, I'm going to have to do something. I can't keep living the way I've been living. So mm-hmm. I made some changes to my diet, which definitely had an impact. And I went in on Monday to uh, get a cortisone shot, my first ever. So I got a steroid in my ankle. Oh my gosh. And I got to tell you, that's working. <gasps> oh <laughs> I've been hearing about these and now I can join the chorus of people that's like, 
sweet stuff. Now it's been, <laughs> you know, 48 hours since I've gotten it. How long does that last? Typically? It can be anywhere from a few weeks to a few months to, oh for people. Gosh. My mom's been getting one in her knee for many years. Mm. And, you know, many years, I think, I don't, I'm not an expert on this, but I know it's not a long-term solve. Yeah. Like, no one says, just get cortisone shots for forever. The idea is it's supposed to be a temporary pain relief until the whatever thing right. you need to actually do. But it's actually been working out for me quite nicely. So there's a little piece of me that's like, oh, I don't know about this early April ankle surgery that I've been yeah. now get wrapping my head around because now this steroid has me feeling good. But at the same time, the underlying stuff that's plagued me for quite a long time and right. is only getting worse hasn't gone away. I just have a little bit of a mask to it right, right. now in this steroid. So that's the news. The news is as of right now, uh, the first Friday in April, I am going to have my ankle fused and begin the uh, 12-week recovery process from that little hoo-ha. Oh my gosh, what? I mean, in the life of having hemophilia, what? What a I mile mean, marker. What a mile? What a badge. <laughs> from big sticks to little knives. <laughs> I think it's interesting though. I mean, for those listening that are parents and caretakers, you know, I, I, I'm sure, as you know, it's it's something that, you know, men with hemophilia, I think uh, it's very much on top of mind with certain target joints and things of when is the right time to do that or when does life lead you down the path just like you did where it's like, well, now I can't like just manage or just like grit through it. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I've been hearing for a while at this point with your x-rays, with your ankle, it's about pain and when you can't take it anymore. And for the first time last year, I was regularly, and saying out loud, because I got into the habit of just voicing stuff more than Natalie, because yeah. I also didn't want to talk about it. Like my, I don't talk about my pain you regularly. 100%. Because why? why? Because what are we going to do? It's like, all the time. Like, what are you going to do? Yeah. Like, every day you're going to be like, well. Hey, still in <laughs> yeah. pain. Like, all right, got it. <laughs> yeah, fine, yeah. you know? Yeah, yeah. If I'm particularly irritable or feel like I, it's affecting me in <laughs> right. a way that needs to be addressed, then right. I, I'll try to be a little sensitive to that. But otherwise, it's not something I talk much about. But I made a point last year to start talking about it more so that I could clock how I'm doing. Yeah. And, and then I was like, wow, that's kind of right. I'm having the same conversation with Natalie over and over and over and over. Yeah. Who are we kidding? And again, baby, you know, we're at the beginning of a journey here. I need my body. Yeah. Um, I have to say, it turns out cutting uh sugar, if you've been consuming sugar like a maniac <laughs> and then stop, it's good. That's a good idea. I learned that too. Cause oh. I had three months of way too much sugar in my diet. Right, right. And now I've had like four-ish weeks where I've been way better about that. That has also helped, as has the steroid. But I know these things. I guess I'm saying this because as I t- said earlier, even coming in, I was like, maybe I won't talk about this yet because now there's this piece of me that's like, well, if this cortisone shot and diet is working out better. But I'm so glad you mentioned it because I think this is the thing. I think this is the conundrum. That's, and that's I think exactly it's timing. Right. You know, like you, I mean, I I think you could if you want to be like, you know what, I'm going to do another year with these cortisone shots and that's how I'm going to manage and all the things. Or you can just go right into it. Not to be um, like a mom or like, you know, like a, a, not, a, a nonprofit nerd. I, I'm an advocate right now. I have heard. Tell the listeners, um, <laughs> what is fusing your ankle? Or what is oh. fusing? Yeah, why don't you give us a little? As best as I can. Um, <laughs> so there were two things that I was talking with Dr. Luck about. And by the way, Dr. Luck is the bomb. He is. And uh, I say this with love and respect. Like he, he's been doing this for a while. Yes. You know, so he's talking to you about bones. Yes. He has a, a little tape recorder. So like he looks at me and then he pulls out his tape recorder and, and he says a bunch of words I do not understand. Yes. He's describing the ankle. And I'm like, I don't know any of these words. This could be a Russian for all I know. <laughs> but I he's so enthusiastic. It. And obviously knows his stuff. Yes. And, and like, the guy's been around. It seems like he may have invented bones. You know what I mean? Like he's been around and he's got uber expertise. Yeah. And his father is the one who started this clinic back yeah. in, you know, I don't know, the 1400s or whenever that was. Like there's institutional knowledge about what it means to <laughs> consider joints and joint replacements for people with hemophilia. So I feel very well cared for. Yes. And, and he's retiring in the not too distant future from the hubbub on the street which is also part of the equation too. Like I'd kind of like the person who's been doing this since the beginning of time to be the person who's doing it with me. And that clock is ticking. Yeah. And to your point, a year from now, all right, maybe these cortisone shots are working. 
But a year from now, I have a two-year-old and, yes, you know, maybe running. a yes. pregnant wife and then yes. another baby and yes. still the dog. And yes. so I'm like, man, life's only going in one direction. Right. So I got to, the timing here is, is important. So your question was about the, what is a fusion though. What I talked to the Dr. Luck about was joint replacement versus fusion. And, and his take, and I want to be clear, this is me recounting my experience with Dr. Luck. I'm not going to say exactly what he said, and this is my take on it. So definitely do your homework, but I will share with you my honest recollection and experience. Um, ankle replacements, there are people for whom with hemophilia, ankle replacements have been successful and lasted 15 years, but it seems as though in general, um, they only last a handful of years uh, there are people who do experience pain related to the actual, I guess, metal that goes into the ankle and the way that it, I don't know, ultimately the the joint accepts or doesn't that hardware that goes in. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's not lost on me. I also had a grandmother who had worked on on her shoulder and lived her whole life with like pain related to metal and and, and stuff in her body. So there's a little bit of me that's like, okay, don't love that part. And an ankle replacement involves cutting a lot of the bone. And Mm. so, yes, in theory, could have an ankle replacement and then in five or 10 years, if needed another, could get another. But they would again need to shave down existing bone to work it in. And each time you do that, there's less bone there. So, you know, starting that process in my late 30s doesn't feel super great. Right. A fusion actually cuts into bones of the ankle and joins them together so that instead of them rubbing against each other and moving around and causing pain, they're actually united. They're one. They become they're one. They're fused, They are if fused, you will. if you will. Oh. Um, so it is still a surgery. It still does involve, you know, damage being done to the bone and the bones having to heal. Yeah. But it is nowhere near as invasive right. as the ankle replacement. And it doesn't preclude down the road if an ankle replacement was the right thing for me, my going ahead to do that. Right. So when that was kind of laid out and when he clearly gave his, as he said, like his spiel, which is way more Mm pro-fusion than it is pro-ankle replacement, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. like, okay, this all makes sense to me and tracks with some of the stuff I've been gathering from people over the last many months about this stuff. Um, So that's where where I'm at as of right (gasps) now and organizing what actually that looks like. Dear listeners, if you are in the process of maybe you maybe you've gone through this and you've had an ankle replacement or you've please. had a fusion, please reach out. Let's talk about maybe we could have like a show about like what's everybody doing or like if you're thinking about it. Yeah. That would be very cool. So that's also kind of why I wanted to bring this up because whatever I ultimately do, like if I choose to postpone the surgery or mm-hmm. if next week I'm like, you know what? I had another conversation with Dr. Luck yeah. and it's ankle replacement, whatever it is, to right. your point, this is the moment. This right. is, we're in the decision-making yes, process yes, 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 right yes. now. And this is something a lot of people in the community go through or their their child goes through or their parent goes through. Right. So I'm inclined to like make it a part of the show this year. You know, That's what this cool. journey is and just filling people in each episode on if there's anything going on, if there's any new thoughts, new fears. Because um, I do, like I'm not, I've talked about needle, I don't know if phobia is the right word for me or not, but I don't like needles. I know yeah. no one likes needles. I'm not at the crispy level of like <laughs> I can't stand needles, but I'm. I love that he's at like like he has his own camping his site own, in that park. Yeah. His own insanity. I I can wave at it. I see where it is, but I'm very calm. I'm like, oh, hey man, that's <laughs> good luck. But I don't like him either. Um, and I don't like body stuff. Yeah, I'm yeah, not yeah, good yeah, with yeah. body stuff. You know, <laughs> Natalie loves everything about a body. She's yeah. the person who's like pulling up Instagram accounts yeah. of like, I do sur- open heart surgery for yeah. a lot. She's like, look no, at this. I'm like, I, no. I, I, if it's a dog or a basketball no. meme, yeah, I don't like that stuff. I don't like it on my body. I don't yeah. like it on other people's bodies. So just the idea of an ankle fusion, I know there are people listening who are like, buddy, I've been through 15 surgeries and, the, and I get yeah. that and power yeah. to you. Not me. And I don't so handle it you've never well. been under. I haven't either. I have ne- no, I've had minor, the most invasive process I've ever, I've had teeth extracted and yeah. I had my isotopic synovectomy, which was not dissimilar to the cortisone shot where basically just a giant needle went yeah. into my foot, which by the way, didn't love that, but it was okay. Thumbs up. It was okay. Um, so yeah, there's like okay. fear, there's no, hesitation there's and all yeah. these things. And you know, why yeah. not just make it a part of the show? 
Also, my mom might be coming to live with me. For, she is coming out. And oh, for really? like weeks, maybe yesterday she dropped three months. And I was like, <gasps> okay. So there's a whole another conversation. Wow, that a, we got to figure out a lot of stuff. Happen. There's, a, yeah. there's a lot of things happening <laughs> in the Lynch household. FMLAs yes. and people's. So, yes. Um, but that's part of it, right? Like these things affect a right. family for a reason. It's not right. just the patients. So now my wife is having to figure out what does this mean for me? My mom is right. figuring out what does this mean for me? Vivian's care, yes. Russell's care, like the the work, the business, yeah, my yeah, job, yeah. like everything, yeah. life keeps happening. So yeah, this will now, I guess, be a part of Bloodstream 2022. Uh, I'm so excited At least about until it. we get sick of it as a topic. This is amazing. <laughs> this is amazing. I really do want to hear from y'all. So please reach out. We would love to hear and we can get you on the show and we can maybe talk about it. I do, um, to make it about me for literally 90 seconds. Please do. Oh, okay. I'll based on this conversation of cortisone steroid shots. Yeah. If you are a professional actor who sings, which I was for a period of time, and you get sick, you can get steroid shots into your throat. They literally, literally, they stab your vocal cords and then you can sing like nothing is wrong. So I just want to put that out there that that has been a part of my life. I've never had to do it. I've never gotten that sick. I've always been able to sing through. It was like something I was very proud of to like figure it out. But I had tons of friends that did. And it's like, it it feels so crazy. I was in a show with someone. I won't say who. <laughs> um, but we were, it was a big theater. And the back was all brick and it was, I don't know what this is called, <laughs> but it wasn't just like straight up brick. It was like designed where it's like yes. brick, empty space, brick. And it's, uh, so there's no acoustics. Like you're, you're <laughs> yes. screaming into like open brick back. <laughs> yes, And yes. there's just nothing. And it was a four person play on this huge oh, stage. God. Every note was just like, can you be louder? Oh, and it's like, God. I, we're just screaming at each other yeah. for an hour and a half. Does anyone want to listen to? But my castmate in that, um, she had major vocal problems just before it opened. And it was like such a before after. We were at tech rehearsal and I think as it went, like she didn't want to get them and conversations. She doesn't want to get them. There's more conversations. We have a tech rehearsal. That night she's back for whether it was preview or opening, I don't remember, but there were people in the seats. And her voice was like, <gasps> nothing had happened. And it was it was very, it was spooky because it was like, yeah. she could not talk this morning. Yeah. Like, how did that happen? Yeah. This can't be this feels like magic. Is yeah. this like the ring? This it feels is like magic. Yeah. This is like Lord of the Rings. Like, be careful of the power here. We can't stay in this territory yeah. too long. But that's my, that was my one experience of, yeah. so I, I, like you, I never got it, but I, I stood sidelined to like yes. the before after yes. of it. And there used to be in Denver, I shouldn't say this. I shouldn't even say this. Uh -oh. It used to be a doctor that would go around and like give, you know, steroid shots like out of the back of his car. And he was like a licensed <laughs> physician, but he was like licensed to the stars of Denver. Sure. Like That's if somebody license. came, you know, if like Adele came to Denver and she needed a steroid shot, like this guy would like out of the back of his car be like, got you. And he was like the guy. Like I remember seeing him at concerts and be like, that guy like loaded up my friend before our matinee of Beauty and the Beast last week. <laughs> you know, like, I mean, it was, it was literally that. So anyway, just, the, I, I, could, I couldn't resist when you were saying cortisone steroids. I was like, there are so many uses for those things. <laughs> really? I, I got to look more into cortisone because so it's just saying, powerful stuff. Namaste. Ah, so, all right. As Amy said, let us know. Mailbag, bloodstreammedia.com. Find us on social. Let us know your experience with joint replacements, fusions, yes, cortisone shots. Because <laughs> yes, uh, I'm looking for input. Yes. <laughs> or if you've got great stories about doctors giving steroids out of the back of a truck. Yes. Also interested. We might do a series just on that if we get enough yes. input. Yes. <laughs> I can feel the listeners being like, yes. Uh, all right. A little bit of quick table setting before the interview. So, Biomarin's gene therapy trial mm -hmm. for uh, a, a therapeutic for hemophilia A. There was data that came out earlier this month. We talked about it here in the Bloodstream podcast a couple weeks ago. Uh, but we wanted to get somebody who could speak more specifically to what the data says, what it means, and what we could uh, keep an eye out for next. So Dr. Guy Young is that person. And my interview with him is coming up, oh, right now. Dr. Guy Young is the director of the hemostasis and thrombosis program at the Children's Hospital of Los Angeles and has been a lead investigator in several major clinical trials for novel hemophilia products. He joins me now to discuss this new data from Biomarin. Dr. Young, good afternoon. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. How about yourself? 
I'm doing well. I, I've been anticipating this conversation for a minute because, well, we've been anticipating gene therapy and pending approvals for, I don't know, decades. So let's, uh, <laughs> let's dive right in. Numerous articles have been published on this data release. I'm going to read one or the beginning of one from biospace.com that starts by noting that Biomarin Pharmaceuticals shared positive results from its ongoing phase three gene therapy <laughs> clinical trial on the viability of Oh boy, Valoctagene Roxaparvavacavac. We're going to be saying Valrox, but it's a much longer, more difficult to pronounce term, technically speaking. Uh, as a treatment for patients diagnosed with severe hemophilia A, the study has a total of 134 adult patients, which does make it the largest of its kind to date. And it saw an 85% reduction in annualized bleeding rate, in addition to a reduction in the annualized factor VIII infusion rate by 98%. Uh, in summary, the results over the two-year evaluation period showed consistent clinical benefit from using Valrox. The company also po uh, posted positive year one results in July of 2021, the article notes. Now, there are some um, other things to dig into, including questions around durability. But before I get too far ahead of myself, Dr. Young, can you give us from a broad a perspective as you can? There's a lot of details. I already read a bunch of different statistics and numbers but can you just help us kind of appreciate big picture wise, what does all this data actually mean? Right, thank you, Patrick. Um, so yeah, we have been anticipating uh, this data for quite a long time. Um, this was something the FDA requested from Biomarin before it would move forward with potentially considering approval of the product as they wanted two year data on the full data set. And mm -hmm. I think, you know, you could look at this a couple different ways. I mean, you already cited very positive statistics and really positive results. 85% um, reduction in bleeding. Uh, again, this is a one-time infusion, right? This is not giving factor or any other medication over and over again. So after a one-time infusion, these patients who participated in the trial had an 85% reduction in their ABR as compared to prophylaxis. So they were doing really well uh, from the bleed standpoint. They also had a dramatic reduction, almost 100%, as you said, 98% reduction in the use of factor. And that's the whole point of gene therapy is to get your factor eight level to a point where A, you're not bleeding, and you also don't need to use any factor to prevent bleeding because the gene right. therapy is there to basically allow you to produce the factor on your own. So looking at it from those two pieces of data, it's, I think, a very strong piece of data. When you say one-time infusion, you have much reduced bleeding and you don't even need to give any factor, not for prophylaxis at all. Now, there was uh, a group of 17 individuals out of that group of, that total group of 134 who have now actually been on this study for a period of three years. So we actually have some data on people who have been in the study for up to three years. And then the larger cohort we have two years of data. One of the other data points that's a little bit more, that's a little concerning, frankly, from my point of view, and this is kind of what I'm most interested in speaking with you about, is the durability of the factor over time. So uh, I believe here, if I can pull it up, let's see. Factor eight activity levels, again, reading from Biopharma Dive, which had risen sharply to an average of 43 international units per deciliter of blood at year one, declined to 23 IUs per year two. And for those 17 participants that I just mentioned, to 17 by year three. So it does seem to me that we're there's a, a notable decline in the amount of factor production, 43, 23, 17, year one, year two, year three. Does that give you cause for concern at all? Yeah, so that's the, uh, the other side of the coin, right? Or, you know, this is where I often have this discussion and say, um, when you look at the data, you can look at it as the cup is half full or the cup is half empty, or maybe half full and half empty, which is, I guess, what a half-filled cup really is. <laughs> and that is to say that, you know, we already mentioned bleed reduction and bleed protection. We already mentioned that these patients are not using hardly any factor at all. However, um, there is a clear and uh, not insignificant decline in the factor levels from year one to year two, and from those smaller group of subjects from year two to year three. And importantly, this 
is similar to the reduction that was seen in the phase one study, which had 13 patients in it at two different doses. But at this dose, there were seven patients where you go out to year four and year five, and there are still some reductions as well. So what that tells me is that this um, one-time infusion is probably not going to provide, you know, I would say definitely not going to provide decades-long protection. The question really is, how long is it going to provide sufficient protection for how many patients? I think the other issue is that there's variability, right? Some patients at year two are still close to the normal range of factor eight. Others have dropped, you know, considerably low to a point where, you know, we may expect to start to see them having some bleeds. And so, yeah, that's, I think, an issue with factor eight gene therapy in general, because we've seen this with at least one other product as well, is this question of durability. And we'll have to just uh, continue to watch the data. But I think for any individual listening to this who is considering gene therapy as a treatment, um, just like with every treatment we have in hemophilia, you have to think about the strengths, the weaknesses, the pros and the cons. And there are pros and there are cons with this treatment. Now, the FDA based on their request for those two years of data. So when Biomarin submitted their application first time around, the FDA came back, said, we'd like two years of data. And the data points that were requested, which we spoke to, the reduction in the annualized uh, bleed rate and the amount of factor eight infusions per year, very encouraging pieces of data, seemed to satisfy the request from the FDA. This decline in factor production and the questions around durability kind of feel to me like they're somewhat of a, they're a little bit of a sidebar from what the FDA was interested in and therefore what the framing around this data seems to emphasize. My concern is that if that trend continues, okay, well, at 43%, 23%, and there's not a lot of factor being used, not a lot of bleeds to speak of, so it seems as though, all right, well, those levels are enough. 17%, if that continues and we get to 13%, 9%, 4%, we're really, we're, we're moving in a direction that's not great. And what does that look like long-term? It, of course, raises questions around the pricing and the reimbursement for this treatment, which I'm not even looking to get into in this discussion. That's a whole other big set of questions related to what is this treatment's core promise and how do we count for it financially based on that core promise? But from a health standpoint, I'm a little concerned about something that we have such questions around its durability. Is that... Is this different than when we've had other novel therapeutics first get to a point where they are uh, approved or maybe uh, on the brink of approval? Is this a new consideration or not really? Yeah, so really good point. So first of all, yeah, the FDA uh, in something called a complete response letter, which is what they sent by Marin when they first uh, attempted to get approval a couple of years ago, asked for this data and basically said, as you pointed out, we want to see that this medication prevents bleeding and we want to see that this medication results in a substantial reduction in the use of factor. Those two boxes have been checked because the data definitely shows that. The other piece we didn't talk too much about is, is just general safety. And I think from mm -hmm. a, you know, from what we've seen from the data is, you know, this looks, at least in the short term, two years, three years, four years, you know, to be very safe. Um, you know, no patients have had, you know, horrible things happen to them at all, not even close. There's, there's questions about side effects related to other medications that sometimes have to be given with this. And I'm talking about steroid medications, immunosuppressive medications, to prevent mm -hmm. essentially what you could think of as rejection of the gene. Um, but overall, I would say, you know, from a safety perspective for the short term or several years term that we have is the product looks really safe. So I think as far as the FDA is concerned and what the FDA asked Biomarin to show them, I think they've checked those boxes. And so I would, you know, my expectation is now Biomarin can move forward with, and I know they will, with submitting an application to the FDA and I think based on what the FDA asked for and what we've seen, I believe they will get an approval. Now, I don't have any inside knowledge with the FDA, and so I'm just taking an educated guess. I want to make sure your mm -hmm. readers uh, are aware of that. 
But I, it seems to me like that they've done what the, uh, what they need to do. The question really then becomes: Let's say it is approved, um, and then for your listeners, you know, what is um, the right treatment for them? Well, as I said earlier, for every treatment has its strengths and weaknesses. If I if I would tell you, for example, if we if we carry this hypothetical drop out some period of time, and there's some reason to think that the drop begins to shallow a bit. In other words, it's not as the steepest drop is the first year, a little more the second mm. year. There seems to possibly be some data that that things get a little bit slower. They continue to drop. There is no flattening completely. They continue to drop. But if from this data we say, you know, let's say I could tell a patient, look, I have this product. It's gene therapy. It's a one-time infusion. Short-term risks seem fairly minimal. You might have to take some other medication that has some side effects, but short-term risks seem minimal. Long-term, we don't know, and we're not going to know for a long time. However, um, this medication can provide you with the ability to not need any factor for prophylaxis, and it could do so for five years, maybe even eight years. And again, I'm now speculating because we don't have that data out, but five, right. eight, ten years. You know, for some patients, they might say, wait, I won't need factor for 10 years, potentially, and I will have almost no bleeds, um, and I can kind of be freed from the day-to-day grind of hemophilia. I mean, you know, for some patients, I think that may be something that would be very attractive. There's others who might say, well, if I'm going to take a risk on something like this, this is a brand new platform for medicine in general, where we don't really know long-term effects. And it's not going to really guarantee me that I'm not going to need factor for the rest of my life, more or less. Then I'm going to hold off and wait for something that possibly can do that. And that's fine. I mean, that's, that is a calculation that I think every you know, adult patient with hemophilia A who may, be, may qualify, if you will, for a product like this, it's a, it's a calculation each individual will have to make for themselves. I think the most important thing is that the physicians they see who are providing them with the, as much information and advice as possible, that these are physicians that they know, they're physicians they trust, they're physicians who understand the pros and cons and the risks and benefits so that the information that the patient receives is up-to-date, accurate, um, not biased uh, as well, um, so that they can then take that information in and make the decision that they want to make for their own life. This is going to sound like a leading question, but do you feel as though the conversations that your colleagues are having, that you're having with your colleagues, other physicians about gene therapy as new data is made available, as we're learning more constantly, do you feel like the right conversations are happening, the right questions are being asked amongst each other? Do you have confidence? Again, this sounds like a leading question, but I, I do mean it. Do you have confidence in the way you and your colleagues are analyzing and discussing this data with each other and then, of course, with patients and families? Well, I, th- I, think, I think yes. I mean, many of us in the community, physician-wise, have been involved in these gene therapy products for many years. We are um, trying to keep as up-to-date as we can. Uh, we're learning from each other. We obviously have conferences we go to. We hear the experts give talks. Um, we digest the data And then it's really our job to present the data, again, to patients in an unbiased way. I think that, um, you know, there's still a lot to learn. I mean, there's still lots of question marks. And um, I think an important thing is for each individual patient, um, there's not going to be any promises, right? Um, This could work fantastic for you. You may not even need to use any steroids and your factor level could get to normal and maybe be there for at least a few years and then slowly drift down, you know, into levels that are not going to cause you any bleeding, 20%, 15%, unlikely to have much bleeding in that range. On the other hand, uh, there are patients who needed to go on steroids and stay on them for quite a while, had side effects with those, and even then had their levels drop fairly significantly to the point where, you know, they weren't really as protected as uh, we would like them to be. And and even potentially the need to go back on prophylaxis so that the whole um, gene therapy um, treatment was really, you know, for some patients, potentially a failure. So again, you know, the majority of patients who got this product um, did very well. The majority, 
the vast majority had significant rises in their fat rate levels. Um, a number that I think people should look at carefully is, is the median. Uh, what mm. is the median factor eight level at different years? Because the median means that half the patients are above that level and half are below. So I think that's a number as a patient I would ask to look at. You know, at two years or three years, what was the median? Let's say, I don't remember exactly what it was, it's 20%, let's say, for example, at year two, and I'm just, I don't have the numbers right in front of me. But let, let's say it's 20%. Then I can tell a patient, look, there's a 50% chance that at two years you'll be above 20%. And a 50% mm. chance that at two years you'll be below 20%, right? That's what the median is. It's that midpoint. And I think that's a more important number than the average because the average, if there's like three patients that are way, way up there, it moves the average up and makes things potentially look a little bit better. So I would ask patients to speak to their physicians and to look at the data and think about the median and just to understand what that means. Again, the median is the midpoint. Half the patients are above that point in time, above that factor level at that point in time and half are below. And, you know, that helps, I think, to for each individual to make a decision. And, and I think, you know, for some patients, you know, I have some young adults patients who are, you know, they're leaving home, they're getting jobs or going to college, they're very mobile. I mean, schlepping their factor around or even their hemlibra around is not that easy. They forget to mm. give it. You know, for some patients like that, particularly in this, in this transitory time between, let's say, 18, 19, and 27, 30, where it's really difficult to, to adhere to these medications. You're moving all over. You're trying to establish yourself as an adult. I think I've got some patients for whom this could be a great treatment, even if after eight years they have to go back to prophylaxis. Because that window of eight years getting them through their young adulthood, whether it's college or starting new jobs or getting themselves to a point where they're a little bit more established, have their own adult life, that could be a really, really important um, step for them um, or, or an important help for them. So I think of some of my patients in that particular age group where I really think that this could benefit them even if, and it's an if, but you know, even if after 10 years they're back to nothing or even after eight years they're down to practically zero and then they have to look at another treatment. But again, it's not for everybody and I think you have to always weigh the pros with the cons. I think the other thing people should be aware of is once you get an AAV gene therapy, so these gene therapies are using a vector called AAV, which is basically just a type of viral particle that is made in a lab. But once you get that, your immune system, it's, it's almost like getting a, it's, it, in a way, it's kind of like getting a vaccine. Think about it like that. Your immune hmm. system will have a response to it, right? To this, ve to this vector, which is essentially just the delivery package, right? It's the, so the, your immune system will respond to the markers on that viral particle, which would, mm -hmm. which will then make it, you know, we think a, a, a near impossibility to get a different gene therapy that's made using the same vector. It doesn't mean you can't get gene therapy using a different method. And there are other methods that are starting to be looked at in humans, but at least with the same one. So that's another part of this calculation. Yeah, there's a lot of branches on the decision tree. Your point about the, you know, maybe this is the eight-year window where for this individual, having a therapy they don't need to think about for eight years is perfect. And then thereafter, if they need to do something differently, okay, we'll, we'll address that when it comes. I had not quite thought about that framework. And I think that makes great sense. I mean, as someone who lost his brother, when my brother was a freshman in college, who was not taking his medicine prophylactically, who was not taking his factor, and that left him vulnerable— Unfortunately, he's an exact case study of why something like this could be extremely beneficial, even to a healthy patient, because they're in that point of life where if their therapy can just be as minimally burdensome as possible, it enables them to have a much better outcome and a higher ceiling on what they could potentially accomplish. So I'm glad that you made that point. And I want to ask you one other question. You, you addressed a number of my questions in your answers, so thank you for doing <laughs> my job too. But one thing you brought up a couple few times and I am curious about— um, it, it's safety related. You mentioned the steroids and the immunosuppressants. I did see one, uh, hem I heard a few criticisms and one hematologist in particular who was online seeking more information about the steroid use and immunosuppressed data related to the immunosuppression of 
the participants and they made the comment that in some cases we're using pretty high doses of steroids and it doesn't seem as though there's data capturing that component of the participants' experiences. Is that, do you have that understanding as well? And do you have any comments on that particular point? Yeah, I think in this first um, um, data release, uh, you know, the focus was really on bleed rates, <clears throat> the decrease in consumption of factor, the factor levels, um, and the general safety, right, which I mentioned earlier. In terms of the steroids, I mean, there's there, there'll be more information, I'm sure, forthcoming. I mean, there'll have to be. You know, this is okay. um, a little bit of a black box because um, we're not entirely sure um, how we should handle this situation. So let's take a step back. When we're giving a gene therapy product, we are introducing new genetic material using a viral particle. And then the body's natural defenses are going to recognize that there's pieces of this viral particle that have gotten into some of our cells, specifically the liver cells, which is where this goes. Mm -hmm. And there's a natural immune reaction to basically say, wait a second, you know, we don't want this virus or these viral particles in the body. So the immune system naturally responds. And one of the ways that it responds is it recognizes cells that contain pieces of the virus and then actively kills those cells. Well, those are in fact the cells that have gotten the gene put in there. So if you think about, you know, a cell is like a room and you've put in, you know, the gene, you've put in a piece of furniture in that room um, and now that room is, you know, furnished. Uh, but then the, the, the body then says, you know, hey, wait a second, you know, we need to get rid of this. And you basically destroy the whole room. Well, the furniture is gone as well, right? Mm. So the gene disappears. Uh, the gene that was put into that cell is gone if that cell is destroyed. And so th that's kind of the quandary, which is that, you know, the immune system naturally is responding to having this viral particle put into the body. And it's responding by essentially seeking out where the virus went and trying to destroy those cells, which is essentially the immune system reacting and killing the cells that have the gene in it. So that means that that and and you know whether that's playing into the reduction in the factor levels is not clear. Let's just be honest; we don't really know why the factor levels are going down. There's probably a variety of different reasons. Um, you know, because for example, in factor nine gene therapy, so far anyway, we don't see that the levels are dropping. The levels seem stable, so it can't be right. as simple as that. And there has to be something unique about factor eight therapy. So the question again of, of the steroids and the question that your patient should be asking if and when this does become available is, you know, doctor, what, what's the likelihood that I'll need to go on medication to suppress the immune system so that I don't, you know, to deal with this immune reaction? And for how long will I need to be on it? And what are the side effects? And again, the steroids are, you know, they do have side effects. Some patients are only on it for, you know, some period of weeks, others are months, others, as you said, are, are even longer. Um, but we're also beginning scientifically to question the need to be on the steroids at all. And, uh, you know, do we really need to suppress the immune system that much? Um, hmm. Or could we use other, other medications? So I, I think, in short, what I would say is the immune reactions associated with gene therapy, both in hemophilia and hemophilia B, remain a, a bit of a mystery. And, and we're, we're not entirely sure how to handle uh, this situation. And there's a lot of learning still to do from that. I mean, it doesn't take away from the fact that there are patients who um, are now, you know, as we said, two years out, three years out. I mean, none of the patients that I recall have stayed on steroids beyond about a year. I mean, usually it's a few months. So those patients that you're looking at in that table that are two years out, the 17 that are three years out, that's without continuing on steroids. So the steroids are not forever. They're for a finite period of time. So the results that you're seeing in the factor levels, the bleed reduction, and the reduction in the use of factor, um, beyond, you know, it, I mean, it is without the need for steroids for some patients at all. And for all the patients, essentially, it's without the need for steroids, certainly beyond the first year. And for many, okay. it's you know, beyond six months. So it's not like it's something you're going to need forever. That was helpful. I'm glad you made that distinction. 
Well, all right, you've already said this, but just in closing, I'll, I guess I'll ask you to repeat it. And as you said, you have no inside track. You're just someone paying attention to what's coming out publicly like many of the rest of us in this hemophilia world. But if you had to place a bet, 2022, is there a commercially available gene therapy product on the market for hemophilia A? I would say um, not maybe 2022, um, but probably early 2023. So just, I, I know that they, there is something called breakthrough designation. It could speed things up a little bit, but let's just say, you know, if you're, if you're putting me to that, I would say probably more likely that early 2023 is where patients may be able to start getting this prescribed. Which will, believe it or not, be here before we know it. Dr. Guy Young, thank you for walking through this with me. Uh, I feel a little more calm about all the numbers and statistics and hearing some of the nuances makes me feel a little bit more relaxed about what this says. And I imagine that must be true for our listeners as well. So appreciate the time today. Sure thing. Happy to help. Thank you, Patrick. Thank you, Dr. Young. That was amazing. It was good stuff. Hey, we're going to switch on over to mental health. Hey, today on today's Let's Talk segment, film cinematographer and segment host Josh Bragg highlights some of the barriers that prevent people from coming forward and talking about anxiety and stress and whatever might be going on with them using stories from the Believe Limited film Let's Talk, along with his own personal experiences. Josh explores what causes barriers like these in the first place and offers up some ideas about what we can do about them. Let's Talk is a partnership between Bloodstream Media and Sanofi Genzyme and aims to create an environment where we can have open, honest conversations about mental health in the bleeding disorder community. For people living with or caring for someone with a bleeding disorder, the impact of mental health is largely invisible and not often discussed. Let's Talk shares tips on how to care for your own or someone you love's mental health and strives to eliminate the stigma associated with this discussion within the bleeding disorders community. And now, over to Josh for Let's Talk. A few months ago, I flew up to San Francisco to help create a video for World AIDS Day. We were supposed to be shooting in the Memorial Grove, but as a rainstorm overtook the skies, John Cunningham, CEO of the National AIDS Memorial, offered us a backup location in a warehouse. But it wasn't any old warehouse. It was the home of the AIDS quilt, and I haven't been able to stop thinking about it. Let's talk. Have you ever walked into a place and felt a tremendous energy around you? Something you can't describe other than it feels like an accumulation of energy from a large part of history collected all in one place? This is what I felt when I walked into the warehouse that morning. I hadn't had any expectations because I had never heard of the AIDS quilt before. I thought maybe it would be like the ones you see in the hallways of schools hanging in the stairwell, 20 feet by 20 feet, made up of little hand-sewn messages and memories and crayon drawings. And it is, to an extent. I'm, I mean, that's exactly what it is, with the exception of the measurements. When we walked into the warehouse, there were quite a few panels hanging from a frame that were set up as a backdrop for the video, probably about 15 feet high and 50 feet across. And as the lights came on throughout the room, what was revealed to us were stacks and stacks of shelves housing hundreds upon hundreds more panels. The air was taken right out of my lungs. We set up for the shoot, and then about an hour later, I found myself just standing in the middle of the warehouse, staring at the portraits and news articles that decorate the walls there, feeling the history, feeling the sadness, feeling the weight in the air and the feeling of beauty, of memorializing human life through art and creativity. John Cunningham found me while I was standing there and put a hand on my shoulder. Pretty overwhelming, isn't it? He asked rhetorically and then said, come here for a second, and led me between two of the stacks that had been wheeled apart from each other by a giant crank. It was dead quiet in there, surrounded by 10-foot-high stacks of fabric. John shoved his hands between a few panels and told me about how every single square inch of this tremendous blanket had been stitched with love, loss, and passion. I thought of my grandmother who passed away a few years ago, of the women in my family who have passed down the art of quilting from generation to generation, about how when I went off to college, I needed my quilts to come with me because I could feel the love that was stitched into them when I got into bed every night, off on my own, on my first big adventure. Standing there with John in the stacks, I dug my hands in too, feeling the familiar stitching, the cool exterior of stored fabric, 
longing to soak up the human warmth that was made to protect. I thought about those who were lost to the virus, those who were infected through their bleeding disorders medicine, those who have suffered heartbreak, health issues, and pain, but are somehow still alive despite the odds. As we sit here on World AIDS Day, and I think about the struggles and the journeys of all people with HIV affected by HIV and AIDS, when I think about the gay community's struggle within that struggle, when I think about the black community's struggle within that struggle, when I think about the hemophilia community's struggle, to state the obvious, you sit at quite an intersection, my friend. Mm -hmm. And your honesty is unparalleled. So if there's one thing that you would like those who are listening to this conversation on World AIDS Day to take away from this dialogue, what would it be? The power of choice. And what I mean by that, I was alluded to earlier, the institutional knowledge of our providers, the institutional knowledge of our subject matter experts who've lived through it, the ability to have that voice spoken. You might recognize that voice. That's Bobby from our Let's Talk Mental Health documentary speaking on the panel I helped film for World AIDS Day. And the quilts are a wonderful remembrance. But what hit my mind of the storytelling, it doesn't necessarily have to be in the quilt. It could be our community members getting together, making a cookbook that has a recipe, but in that, there's that story. So it goes on down. It can be a artwork or whatever. That sitting here, quilts, World A say what, what what has impacted me right now is there's division that's going to come together. I was alluded to our females with bleeding disorders, our clinicians who are aging, systems that are now being made to change that gives everyone access, everyone choice. So my final words would be choice because then you have an option of what to do and you're in control of that. You have that dynamic, the choice to advocate, the choice to speak up both for, from a clinician standpoint, for his or her own needs to support subject matter experts, subject matter experts to render the warm and fuzzy and not warm and fuzzy to those coming up, to have the rough conversations provider to patient, to say our silos of I'm this organization and, you, and you're that one, that got to go. The choice to say all of us in community need to be together, whether gay, straight, purple, purple, whatever, Baptist, Catholic, whatever, that has no relevance to it all. What's relevant is that at the end of the day, what is done that is right for our folks who are coming up. The education piece of saying, you have an option. If you can't do it this way, let's try that way. And to remember, <laughs> yes, there are those who are on our national forefront for years who have gone on home to glory. But the ones that are behind are going to give the glory to the ones who are coming up in that choice. To remember, the struggle got us all where we're at today. Because without the struggle, all of this wouldn't be happening. All of conversations wouldn't be happening. World AIDS Day with our community would not be happening. Because it's necessary to continue that knowledge that says our community has fought for so many others. And so now we're going to continue with collaborations so that we can continue, so that our folks don't have to be on a quilt. But when they do go on home, it's not because of complications, because of, uh, they had a decision and they made it. That's my final choice. There are people in our community like Bobby who don't know where they fit in. 
Yes, they live with a bleeding disorder, but some also live with HIV and hepatitis, and that creates a barrier for them of where do I fit in? Some people feel a gap because of their age or because of what access to care looks like in their country or because of their gender identity, their addiction story, their sexual orientation, their race, their financial situation. There are endless reasons for us as people to ostracize ourselves from these groups that could help us grow emotionally, to heal, and to find happiness, or at the bare minimum, acceptance. And I think that's where the quilt really stands out as a symbol. Bobby's right, it doesn't have to be a quilt. It could be a cookbook or a mural. But the symbolism of being stitched together, all our ramshackle pieces, all our colors and patterns and textures stitched together in unity, Because there is no piece of fabric, no kind of thread or material that wouldn't fit into the quilt. Its beauty comes from the complexity of what it's made up of. A mosaic of pain, of heartbreak, celebration, of life lived, lost, and loved. Sew yourself, friends, into the quilt of your community. Find an open space and take it whether it be at a conference, a support group, a book club, or a cookout, and spend some time to reach your thread to someone in your community who may be off on their own, secluded and blowing in the wind. Open up a conversation. Chances are they've been hoping to be sewn in, but are second-guessing it because of who they are, and who they are is beautiful. Thank you, Amy and Patrick, for giving me the space to talk and explore these ideas. Talking can be so healing. If you want to hear more from Bobby about his mental health journey, you want to check out the Let's Talk mental health film or explore some helpful resources, I encourage you to visit letstalkmh.org. Also, the entirety of the World AIDS Day programming that we believe helped produce is on the National AIDS Memorial YouTube channel. Thanks for listening, friends, and I'll see you next time. If you or someone you know has experienced feelings that have impacted your mental health, talk to your healthcare provider and find educational resources at letstalkmh.com. Thank you, Sanofi Genzyme, for making Let's Talk possible. And Josh will be back next month with another Let's Talk segment. And listeners, you've heard us talk about this before, but the Let's Talk segments are also all available as video segments that live in isolation, just as a curated list of those segments on the Bloodstream Podcast website. So if you go to bloodstreammedia.com, click on the Bloodstream Podcast show, you'll see the banner for Let's Talk, and there you will find each one of those segments that Josh leads, uh, neatly organized so that you can deep dive the mental health topic as as much as you'd like to, as far as you'd like to go. Neatly organized. It's neatly organized. Yeah, it makes us happy over here Um, Thank you, Josh, as always, for that segment. Thank you uh, again to Dr. Guy Young. I also asked him to do that pretty last minute. He did not really have a lot of time. He was like, if you can do it in the evening, I can do it this evening. And it was like, hey man, if you can do it, yeah. He's also a rock star. I love listening to Dr. Guy Young. I do too. And you know, when when people like him with the schedule that he keeps, and I've seen his outlook before. I've seen his calendar (laughs) and been like, what are you doing with your life? How are you doing anything? Uh, yeah, when they're willing to go above yeah. and beyond like that, it's like, yeah, that's yeah. that's who you are. So yeah. thank you, Dr. Young. That was very helpful. Amy, we've got our next episode on February 11th. What can our listeners expect to hear on February 11th? Drum roll, please. Oh, okay. We have a new host, a new co-host for Flow, and we get what? Sarah Watson, our new co-host for Flow. We get to learn all about her. She is super cool. She has the coolest background um, and she is such a wonderful, unique um, addition to that podcast and that uh, movement that we're really trying to speak openly and honestly about the menstrual cycle experience. So we're so excited to have Sarah. So make sure to uh, listen in next week. Yeah, head on over to Next episode, not next week. And if you haven't listened to it recently, there's probably one available right now for you. Yes. And you can also go to bloodstreammedia.com and find the Flow podcast there too. So after you go through the Neatly Let's Talk organized. segment, a lot of organization on bloodstreammedia.com. Go and enjoy <laughs> it. Uh, we'll also have blood brother Jim Euler on. He'll talk a bit about financial planning and things to be mindful of, really, if if you're anybody, but especially if you're living with a chronic blood disorder. That's coming up on the 11th. And... There's another, uh, there's a new podcast that we're not going to talk about right now, but we will talk about on February 11th. It'll be launching here soon. We'll talk about that next time. It's a cliffhanger. I, I'm all, I'm all like secret topics and cliffhangers. This is my <laughs> new approach to producing. 
Um, and listeners, with that, that is all for this episode. Reminder to subscribe to the Bloodstream Podcast wherever you listen. Share this episode with family, friends, colleagues, neighbors, delivery people, anybody. And join us again next month. Episodes go live Feb 11 and Feb 25. Have a bleeding disorders or health topic you'd like to hear us discuss more? Is there an expert or guest that you're dying to hear from? Or want to inquire about storytelling and casting opportunities for Bloodstream's podcast or Believe Limited's films? Have you had an ankle fusion? Oh, or have you had an ankle fusion? We would love you to email us at mailbag at bloodstreammedia.com or connect with Bloodstream Media on social media. You'll find us everywhere. You will. We mean everywhere. Everywhere. We're on Facebook. We're on Instagram. We're on Twitter. You can follow myself. My name's Amy Bohr. You can follow Patrick James Lynch That's on Facebook, name. Twitter, Instagram, or LinkedIn. We both do LinkedIn now. Is <laughs> a big deal, a running theme. On Bloodstream, we both do LinkedIn now. We've talked to professionals about how to do LinkedIn. <laughs> there are Literally, photo shoots set up to serve LinkedIn. There's like a lot of things that I had to like just, you know, come come over to the dark side. So anyway, shout out to all those committed LinkedIn users out there, which I am now one. I call it growth, Amy. I call it growth. Uh, listeners, I'm your host, Patrick James Lynch. And I am your other host, Amy Board. And until next time, take self-care of yourself. Bye, everybody. Bye-bye. Ha, 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 ha.